purposes, for your glory. And we trust that. We know that. Father, as we, as we look to your word, as we look to your heart, we want to recognize and see how in control you are and believe that and receive that and allow you and your authority to have control over our own lives. Father, we wonder why it is that sometimes we see things in the world and yet we don't even look to our own lives and realize that we too have rebellions. We too just do not allow your word to rule and reign in areas of our lives. And yet you want to have it all. And so, Father, teach us through your word, teach us through your prophet to learn to surrender, learn to give everything to you. Because you're going to come and you're going to do a work and the things that aren't yours, Father, you're going to um, chastise. The things that aren't yours, you're going to discipline. The things that are, you'll build up. And, and you just want to um, restore. And so do that, Lord, through your word. Do that through your spirit. Knit us to your heart, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen. All right, saints, turn to the Old Testament book of Amos, one past Joel. And um, a couple weeks ago, we went through Joel. As you're going through Joel, keep in mind that what Joel was, was a whole area of pestilence. It was turmoil. It was the locust, everything being destruction. Now, the book of Amos is a little bit different. Actually, it's kind of like in the opposite spectrum. During the time of Joel, devastation had hit the land. Devastation was just everywhere. There was famine. There was, you know, the, the, the locusts, there was the drought, there were the fires. And what happens in Amos is actually a time of great prosperity where they are, are um, one of the main nemesises they had was, was Syria. And through the, the kings of Israel and through the kings of Assyria, um, Syria was kind of brought low, and Syria was kind of no more of effect to them. And so they were able to prosper huge during this time. What was happening is during their prosperity, they were not just content with, okay, God is kind of blessing us, but then they were wanting more prosperity. And we are going to see here through the book of Amos that one of their issues were they were oppressing the poor. See, there are times where God provides a lot. There are times that he provides not so much, but he's always provided what? A family. A family to say, wow, if I'm prospering, I'm going to assist, I'm going to help, not take advantage of the poor. But that's what they were doing here. So keep in mind that as Joel was a time of pestilence here, Amos is a time of prosperity. And as we look to this, it's broken into just kind of like two sections. The first two verses are, are the, the nations and God judging the nations. The rest of the, or the first two chapters are God judging the nations. The rest of the chapters, verses 3 through 9, are God's judging simply the northern tribes. So we're going to see him simply sentencing the nations and what he's going to do in the first couple of chapters. In verses, um, chapters 3 through 6, he's going to talk about the sin of Israel. In 7 through the first part of chapter 9, he's going to talk about sentencing Israel what he's going to do with them, the disciplining. And then, of course, once he gets to nine chapter, chapter 9, verse 11 through the end, he's going to talk about the salvation of Israel, of the northern tribes. So keep in mind that as we're going to see here, it opens up very clearly the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. 
At this point, it opens up a lot within that first verse of the first chapter. It, it tells you that here the man's name is Amos. Okay, so we have that. And he was among the sheep breeders. Now, the sheep breeders would be, in a sense, it would be a shepherd, but it's, it's more of a term where he's an actual sheep breeder, not just a shepherd. Usually in the Old Testament, they have that term shepherd, but this is different. This is an actual breeder of sheep. What he's, what he's trying to say is this. If he were to simply say the words of Amos, a shepherd, a lot of us would get that spiritual sense, like, oh, he's a shepherd of people. He's like, no, I'm not a shepherd of people. I'm literally a shepherd of actual sheep. That's all I am. I'm a shepherd of sheep, not of people. And so I'm there from Tekoa, which is there in the area of Judah, and which he saw concerning Israel. So keep in mind that here, Amos is there living in the southern area of Judah, and he's called by God to go to the northern area to go to Israel and to prophesy against them. And I'll tell you what, when you have someone from the south telling someone from the north kind of how to do things, it just doesn't come out that well. Think about this. If a Bears fan came up to here and started telling the Packers how to play football, you know, you just sort of laugh at them. You're a Bears fan. What do you know about football kind of a thing? But yet here, he's from the southern tribe of Judah, that southern area, and he's coming, he's prophesying against the northern tribe. Well, eventually they're going to tell him to go home, but I think it's interesting that he says, I'm there from the area of Tekoa, which I saw concerning Israel, which is now the northern tribes, in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And so Uzziah reigns from about 790 to 739 B.C. And then he says, and then in the days of Jeroboam, and this would be Jeroboam II, who reigned from 793 to 753 B.C. So that puts this book right around 760 to about 753 B.C. There's about a 13-year gap in where this um, prophecy where here the book is located. Now, the reason why I want to spend a little bit of time on just when this book was written, keep in mind, if it was written somewhere around 760, um, that we know that uh, Israel was taken captive by Assyria in 722. So you're only looking at about 40 years before Israel is taken captive by Assyria and just taken out of the land. So this is that time of Amos. Amos is now prophesying just before, about 40 years before they're taken um, there. It refers to now um, this earthquake, um, Zechariah 14 verse 5. He already mentions that earthquake as well. So there was an earthquake that was there. Um, Josephus talks about it. It's not really so much in the record books, but it is mentioned a couple times in Scripture. And then in verse 2, he says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So at this point, he does make the statement that he's from Tekoa. He's now prophesying against the northern tribes of Israel during the time of Uzziah and Jeroboam II. Now, when he says in verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion, he utters his voice from Jerusalem. This is a huge dig to the northern tribes. Why? Because they have the golden calves. They're in Bethel and they're in Dan. And he's saying, listen, God doesn't speak from Bethel. God doesn't speak from Dan. God doesn't speak from your golden calves. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
He's trying to tell the northern tribes, God's there. He's not here with your golden calves. He's there. His temple is there. That's where he desires you to be as well. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. So there's going to be devastation on top of Carmel Withers. Again, you're talking about both the lowlands and the highlands. So there isn't, so you're talking about there's no middle ground from the very low of the pastures to the top of the mountains. Everything there, the shepherds mourn because there's nothing for the sheep to eat. The top of the mountain, there's nothing for them to eat. So we see here from the bottom to the top, it's all wiped out. So you see it holds true to the people, but also holds true to the land. And now in verse 3, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send fire into the house of, of Haziel, which shall devour the, the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and I will cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon. And the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Syria, shall go captive to Kerr, says the Lord. Now, I want you to focus on just a couple of aspects of what we're going to see here in verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. He says initially, thus says the Lord. Just mark that, highlight it. For three transgressions of we're going to see here Damascus and for four. So for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because, and now he mentions something that they have done. So he says, for three, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now, what does he mean for three transgressions and for four? It's one of two things. One is he's talking about compounding sin. You had three transgressions and there's a fourth transgression. And of course, it just means that there's this continuation of compounding sin. The other is this, that he talks about three transgression. Three is the number of perfection. And then you add another four transgressions, which is the number of balanced truth. And he's saying, and that gives you, what, seven, seven total transgressions. And you know, as far as I do, that when we go through the scriptures, when you see that number seven, seven is the number of completion. He's talking about the completion of sin or the escalation of sin. One of two, either the escalation isn't good, and once you've gone so far, it's completed isn't good. So however you want to determine that, it's okay. There's not one over the other. The word in the, the Hebrew kind of leans to both. And within the context is how you need to determine. And the context really doesn't determine it. So you can go either or. So I wouldn't put a big, um, you know, stand on either or of these. But it does say in verse 3, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. So either the completion of sin or the continuing um, compounding of sin, I'm not going to turn away its punishment because, and then he notes their punishment, and then he says in verse 4, I will send fire. In other words, there's going to be a judgment. Now, why am I focusing on that? Well, initially in verse 3, he deals with Damascus. Once you get to verse 6, it says this, thus says the Lord for three, three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because, this is what they did, and then verse 7, but I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza. I will bring judgment. In verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because, says what they did, 
And then in verse 10, but I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, again, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword. This is what he did. And then in verse 12, but I will send a fire upon Teman. So we see this pattern over and over. Thus says the Lord for the three transgressions and the four, whether it's compounding or completion, I will not turn away its punishment because of all the sin. And because he mentions their sin, and then in verse, you know, we see after that he says, and I'm going to send a fire. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because, it says here, they ripped open the women with child in Gilead. And then in verse 14, but I will kindle fire in the wall of Rabbah. In other words, destruction, judgment. Chapter 2, verse 1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because, talks about what they did, they burned the bodies of the king of Edom to Lyme. And then verse 2, but I will send fire upon Moab. Verse 4 of chapter 2, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because, here they have despised the law of the Lord. Verse 5, but I will send fire upon Judah. Do you understand this pattern that he does? So he goes from um, city to city to city, dealing with, thus says the Lord, you have sinned, and because you have sinned, I'm going to send fire, or there's going to be a judgment. And now in chapter 2, verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, now speaking of the northern tribe, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because... now. Keep in mind that we don't see the destruction until chapter 3, verse 2, where it says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So what we see here is a pattern now. And we see here the first city is the, the, the Syrians. Then you have the Philistines. Then you have Tyre. Then you have Edom. Then you have Ammon. Then you have Moab. Then you have Judah. And then lastly, you have um, Israel. So you're dealing with seven cities, seven areas, seven countries, and the judgment that God has. So initially when it comes to Damascus, and Damascus, of course, is the capital of Syria, it says there in verse um, 3, I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. So in other words, they killed the inhabitants of Gilead. He said, so because you've killed the inhabitants of Gilead, I will send fire into the house of Hazael, which devour palaces of Ben-Hadad. So all the worshipers there and the king and all the leaders there, I will also break the gate bar of Damascus. In other words, here Assyria is going to be able to enter in. I will cut off all the inhabitants of the valley of Avon, which is the valley of the captives, and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the leaders, the rulers, the people of Syria shall go captive to Kerr. And just so you know, for a note taker, Kerr is, is up there in the area of the Assyrians. They're going to be taken to the area of the Assyrians. So, um, and of course, that's found in, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 16. So we see this now. He talks about here, I'm going to just deal with Damascus because of what they have done. In verse 6 of chapter 1, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza. Now he's going to deal with the Philistines. He says, I'm not going to turn away their punishment because they took captive the whole of captivity and delivered them up to Edom. 
And I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. And I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, another city of the Philistines. And the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, another of the major cities of the Philistines. And I will turn my hand against Ekron, another of the major cities of the Philistines. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, thus says the Lord God. So at this point, the Philistines had taken captive there of Edom. Edom, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, Edom is another word for Esau. So you have Jacob and Esau, the twins. And so, you know, through that, you have Abraham, Isaac, and we say Jacob, but Jacob had a brother Esau, through which he had the blessing, through which he then had the birthright. And so from that, Edom is, in a sense, a brother of Israel. But here, because of what the Philistines did, God says, I'm going to judge you because of what you did. Now, in Verse 9, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. Now he's not talking about the Syrian side above Israel. He's talking about the Lebanon side. He's talking about the western side. And he's talking about Tyre. I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of the brotherhood. So as they were now dealing with here Israel and, and Edom, He says, I'm going to judge you, Tyre, as well. And so through this, he makes a statement in verse 10, I will set a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. So in other words, Tyre is going to be destroyed. And of course, it was through Alexander the Great. Now verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three, three transgressions of Edom and for four. Now he's talking about Edom. I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother, which would be Israel, with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send fire upon Teman, the judgment, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. So now he says, okay, now I'm going to deal with Edom as well because of what they've done with Israel. Now in verse 13, for th- thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon. Ammon, as you know, there was that second grandson of Lot there in Genesis 19 verse 38 when his two daughters had gotten Lot drunk and the first went in on one night the second went on another night well the first one had Moab the second one had Ammon so here we see the judgment of Ammon so in verse 13 thus says the Lord for three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory In other words, they had no problem killing children in the womb so that they could have gain. Verse 14, but I will not, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and shall devour its palaces and the shouting in the day of battle, its tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity. He and his princes together, says the Lord. So eventually they will be taken also through um, Babylon and through Assyria. Now in chapter 2, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab. So in Genesis 19, verse 32, uh, verse 37, we see here, it was the, um, the, the first of Lot's grandson. So the, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. And he set a fire up, I will send a fire upon Moab. I shall devour the palaces of Kirath. Moab shall die with a tumult and with a shouting trumpet sound. And I shall cut off the judge from its midst and its princes with him, says the Lord. 
So at this point when we have Moab, what was different is this, that here Ammon was killing children in the womb and Moab was desecrating the dead. Actually what he had done is they'd taken the king of Edom and then they burned that king that was there in the tomb and they burned him to lime. In other words, they burned him to ashes. And so they desecrated the dead. And so he says, I'm going to deal with you, Moab. So you had from the time of babies to the time of the dead, and literally nothing in life was sacred. And I think that's kind of where it's going in our own country, in our own world. There's nothing sacred. They kill a baby in the womb, and, and they, they have no problem saying, okay, well, if someone is, is going through some suffering as they get older, well, then you can take your own life, or someone can take your life. Um, there's just no true honor um, to life, whether it's, it's the life in the womb or the life that had been lived. And so there's just a desecration of all of it. And then when you get to verse 4 of chapter 2, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord. His own children aren't listening to him. And because of that, it says they have not kept his commandments. Their lies led them astray. They wanted to believe lies versus the truth. Lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. So in other words, don't worry. Judah is also going to be dealt with. So as Amos comes and he begins to share here as far as these first seven cities, these first seven areas that they, God says it, you've sinned, and this is what you did, and so I'm going to send a fire upon you. I'm going to deal with you. He makes those statements for the first seven. And then he changes a little bit when it comes to Israel because now with Israel he has a lot longer litany because he's now called Amos to testify to Israel as far as their sins. So, verse 6 of chapter 2, for three transgressions, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they sell their righteous for silver, in other words, idolatry, and the poor for a pair of sandals. So not only do they in their own richness are seeking after idols, but they literally abuse the poor and they manipulate the poor and they oppress the poor simply for another pair of shoes, and which is just a sad thing. So it says in verse 7, they pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. They pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in a pledge, and they drink wine of the condemned in the house of their God. So at this point, we begin to see here that they are just doing whatever they want to do. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. So in other words, that here they don't take care of the poor. The poor are miserable. The poor are there on the earth. And, and so they... they literally want more from the poor even though there's nothing that they can give they pervert the way of the humble a man and his father go into the same girl so you see here these perversions that take place they defile my holy name they lie down by every altar on clothes taken in a pledge this is a unique term because this whole area about clothes taken in a pledge there's a passage in Exodus chapter 22, verse 26, which actually talks about what you should do. If someone does give you a cloak for a pledge and say, hey, I'm going to give you your money back. 
What here God tells them to do is this. Exodus 22, verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. In other words, you need to give him back. It's like a blanket. You can't take everything to him, from him. You don't want him to freeze. And so we see here, verse 8, they lied down by every altar on clothes taken in a pledge. So rather than giving the clothes back to them at the end of the evening, it says they lied down by every altar on clothes. So they go to sleep worshiping their false gods with these clothes as they oppress the poor, and they're not giving them back their cloaks so that they could at least be warm. And they drink the wine of condemnation in the house of their gods. So in other words, you're simply pursuing idols, and they're oppressing the poor. Just saying that in multiple ways. And then in verse 9, it says, Yet, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. So he's saying that when you came into this, the, the promised land, I destroyed the Amorite, whose height was like the height of cedars. In other words, like the giants that were in the land. And he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and its roots beneath. I took out everything about them so that they couldn't come back. In verse 10, so it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. At this point, God is saying, I've been with you. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you into the land. I prepared the land for you. And, and although here, when I brought you into the land, I did two things. I raised up, verse 11, some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. So I raised up godly men who had made vows to me, and I raised up other men who were prophets. And he says, tell me that it's not true, that I raised up those men. I put a holy commandment in your midst. Verse 12, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. You corrupted these holy men, and you commanded the prophets, saying, do not prophesy. So as I put holy people in your midst, you corrupted them. You told the prophets, shut up. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And so verse 13, God says, I'm weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides horse deliver himself. The most courageous of men might, of men of might, might flee naked in that day, says the Lord. So here he says, listen, I'm weighed down by you. You're just a heavy, heavy burden with your sin upon my life. And so he makes a statement in verse 4, Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. What he's saying is this, that there's going to be no escape for you from Assyria. There's a passage in Amos chapter 9, verse 10. I just want to read it to you. But it makes this statement as far as here what the nation is and what they're going to be going through. In Amos chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Of all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, the sword who say, The calamity shall not overtake or confront us. They're saying, 
No harm will come to me. I'm going to escape this. Nothing's going to happen. Well, here, look at verse 14. He said, the flight shall perish from the swift. You think you're going to be fast? You're not going to escape. The strong will not strengthen his power. You're not going to avoid it through strength. Nor shall the mighty deliver himself. It says you won't even be able to deliver yourself, let alone deliver someone else. He shall not stand who handles the bow. So if you think you're going to defend yourself with a bow, you're not going to stand. You're going to die. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. No one is going to deliver themselves. And in verse 16, it says, The most courageous men of might, those who should be the most valiant in battle, well, at the very most, they might flee naked in that day. There's going to be no mighty men standing up here against Assyria. And so in chapter 3, we see here that God begins to now present his case, say, listen, you deserve what is going to happen to you. So hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, speaking to the northern tribes, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, so this is for you, Israel, you who had been redeemed from Egypt, you who I brought up out of Egypt, brought into this land, blessed you with prophets and Nazarites. He says, here, you, verse 2, only have I known of all the families of the earth. He said, you were special to me. You were amazing to me. You I've known. You I've put my name. You I've walked with there in the wilderness. You were special. He says, you, only you, have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. He says, because you are my children, I'm going to discipline you because you have walked away from me. And now he begins to do this list. And it's a list here of seven things. And they seem may seem like they're disjointed. They may seem like they're not um, together, but they really are. When he says at the end of verse 2, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And now notice this here, um, these escalating examples which he's going to bring. He begins at first, can two walk together unless they are agreed? He said, we, we should be together. We sh you should be agreeing with me. Um, we should have this all together. But can two walk together unless they agree? So you see these two that should be in a relationship. They're, but they're, if they're, unless they're agreed, they can't be in a relationship. So initially you see these two people in a relationship, in agreement. And then in verse 4, will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of its den if he has caught nothing? So now you have these next two. Speaking of an animal that overcomes another animal. And so he makes a statement, and the lion will roar in the forest when he has no prey. Will one? Well, the answer is, well, if he has no prey, no. But if he does have prey, yes. So you see here this animal overcoming another animal. Will this lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will the young lion cry out, of his den if he's caught nothing. So you see again this animal versus animal, one overcoming the other. And then in verse 5, will a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing? 
So we see here that these lions are wanting to pursue prey, and here man is wanting to pursue prey as well. So in verse 5, it talks about here man overcoming an animal. So will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there's no trap for it? Men are seeking to overcome animals. Will a snare bring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? Again, there's this desire to overcome, a desire to corrupt. And in verse 6 it says, If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? If there is a calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? Now we see it moves from two people walking, if they are agreed, to an animal wanting to overcome another animal, to man wanting to overcome the animal, to man wanting to overcome man. And that's what we see here in verse 6, the corruption of the heart of men. Isn't just to take over animals, but if a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? In other words, an approaching army is coming. Man is wanting to overcome man. If there's a calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? So in other words, disaster cannot come into a city unless the Lord determines for that disaster to be so. So as we're noting this here, it begins very simply as, as the trumpet is blown into the city. And then here, if there's a calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? So we see, you know, verse 6 is um, the trumpet is blown is the sixth one, man overcoming man. And then the seventh one is God allowing man to overcome man. And then lastly, we see here in verse 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophet. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So in other words, God, when it says the lion has roared, who will not fear? In other words, God is going to initiate your destruction. God is going to initiate your calamity. This is what God is going to do. So Amos saying, listen, the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? God wanted to have this relationship with you, but you didn't want to have that relationship. You were wanting to separate that. And so he shows what happens when you no longer have this friendship relationship. There's just enmity. And he's saying that as you have enmity with me, I will have enmity with you. So verse 9, proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces of the land of Egypt and say, assemble the mountains of Samaria, See great tumults in her midst and the oppressed with her, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord. So now he talks about here the area of the Philistines, the area of Egypt, and then of course you go to the mountains of Samaria. And that's moving up towards Tyre. So he's saying all of this here on the western side, he said no one knows to do right. So in other words, from the top to the bottom, from the very you know, where, where Egypt is all the way up to the northern area, from top to bottom, nobody knows how to do right. So, thus says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces, therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be around the land. He shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered. So he says, you're going to have this army, this adversary all around you. We know it to be Assyria. And you're going to have no strength because God is not going to be there with them. 
So verse 12, thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria. So here he says, as a shepherd takes out of the mouth of a lion just two legs or a piece of an ear. What does it mean? It means that here, that lamb has been chewed up. It has been eaten, and there's only just this little tiny remnant left in it. So in the same way as the shepherd takes this, you know, this lion that devours a sheep and has eaten the sheep, well, the same thing is going to be true of the children of Israel. So as the shepherd takes from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out. In other words, just little pieces, bits and pieces of the people who dwell in Samaria. In other words, just a small remnant. In the corner of the bed and on the edge of the couch, hear and testify against the house of Jacob. Thus says the Lord God, the God of hosts, in that day I punish Israel for their transgressions. I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Now at this point, when he talks about here, all of the children of Israel who are going to be taken out in bits, he talks about their wealth. Notice what he says at the end of verse 12. Who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. So in other words, as the rich here are oppressing the poor. Where here, he says, you know, the whole couch is mine, you can have a corner. The whole bed is mine, you can have an edge. And so where they're, they're not wanting to assist the poor at all. And so God says in verse 14, I'm going to visit destruction on the altars of Bethel. On the horns of the altar shall be cut off. So the altar there with the golden calves are going to fall to the ground. And then he says to all these rich who have been oppressing the poor, verse 15, I'm going to destroy your winter house along with your summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish. So you that have all these multiple houses, you that are rich and oppressing the poor, he says the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. So all of your prosperity, because you're not seeking my heart through that, it's all going to be gone. And then in chapter 4 he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the day shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks and your prosperity with fish hooks. And you will go through broken walls, each one of you straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into harmon, says the Lord." So we see here that he talks about now the women of these rich men who are oppressing the poor. Because they're wanting the same thing. And, and I, it's interesting that here you have this man from the south. You have this man from the area of Judah. Calling the women of Samaria cows. Now, I don't know about you, but if people from Illinois started calling our women cows, you know, those are feuding words. But here, that's what he does. 
He comes up and he says, hear this, you cows of Bashan. He's saying, you're just these fat, lumbering cows that are up there sitting on the mountains, the high places. You oppress the poor. You crush the needy. You say to your husbands, ah, more wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. So God says, this is what's going to happen to you. The day shall come upon you. Well, he's going to take you away with fish, fish hooks. So the Syrians are going to put fish hooks in the jaws. They would put a, a hook in the jaw to the roof of their mouth and they drag them along. That's what he says. So you're going to be taken away with fish hooks. Your prosperity, in other words, all of your children, they're going to be taken away with fish hooks and you'll go through broken walls. So where you think you have all this wealth and protection, the walls are all going to be broken down. You're going to be taken out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you'll be cast into Harmon, which is the mountains of Assyria, says the Lord. So God says, you who are oppressing the poor, you're going to be taken captive. And in verse 4, he says, come to Bethel and transgress. So he actually says, come down to this area where there, remember in 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, where they made those golden calves and they set them up there in Bethel. They set them up there in Dan because they didn't want the children of Israel to come down to Jerusalem, lest they think, wow, God's here, we should stay here. So they're trying to make something that's an imitation so the children of Israel will not go down to Jerusalem to the temple. So he says, come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal which is about eight miles north of Bethel, and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and, and announce the freewill offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. He says you love it when you worship these golden calves. You love it when you worship your idols. So, because you love this false worship... Verse 6, God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places that you've not returned to me, says the Lord. I want to pause here for just a second because there's going to be five times that God makes this statement. And each time he says, yet you've not returned to me. In verse 6 at the end, he says, yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. In the end of verse 8, he says, yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. At the end of verse 9, he says, yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. In the end of verse 10, he says, yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. And in the end of verse 11, he said, yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. But then in the end of verse 12, he makes this statement. Oh my goodness, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. All these things I do to bring you back to me, and yet you wouldn't come back. No matter what I did, you would not return to me. Well, I've done all these things. Now, now guess what? I'm going to do this, and you are going to meet me. So prepare to meet your God. I'm trying to draw you back nicely. I'm trying to draw you back with love. I'm trying to draw you back even with discipline. But you constantly take this discipline and reject it. So in verse 6, when he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Now, he's not saying that I gave you toothbrush and, and Colgate or Crest or anything. What he's saying is this. You have no food to make your teeth dirty. He's saying, I gave you clean teeth. And why? 
you've got no food. You've got nothing to get stuck between your teeth. You don't, there's, there's nothing to eat. So he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. You have no food. And, and you think that with this famine going on that you would return, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Well, verse 7, then I also withheld rain from you. And when there were still three months of the harvest, I made it rain on one city and withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they weren't satisfied. I didn't give you rain. And yet at the end of verse 8, you did not return to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew, verse 9. And when your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locust devoured them. So I gave you blight, mildew. Um, the locust came and ate everything. At the end of verse 9, yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. And so verse 10, I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. And your young men I killed with a sword along with your captive horses. And I made the stench of your camps come up to your nostrils. Yet you've not returned to me, said the Lord. And I overthrew, verse 11, some of you, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. Yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. God says, I'm trying to get your attention. Would you pay attention to me? Would you come to me? Would you realize that you're in sin? Would you realize that you need to turn? Would you realize you need to come back to me? And so here he says in verse 12, Therefore thus I will do to you. I've done it before. I will do it again. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. What he's saying is this. These things that I've done to get your attention are nothing compared to what I can do. And this is interesting that he says, I've been gracious to you. I've been merciful to you. I've only done this. I could have wiped you out like Sodom and Gomorrah. I could have done anything. Verse 13, for behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. So he goes and he begins to express the very power of God. And he says, I'm the one who's telling you this. So chapter 5, hear this word which I take up against you, O lamentation, O house of Israel. You need to hear this word. You need to hear what I'm declaring to you. Verse 2, the virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. That which goes out by the hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So we begin to see here there's going to be this great destruction that happens. 90% is going to be wiped out. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. <laughs> I love what God said. First he says, just go to Bethlehem and worship, and you're going to get what's yours. And then he says at the end of verse 4, thus says the Lord, seek me and live. Do not go to Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, no pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. 
It's interesting. He's saying if there's any hope at all, you're going to find it in me and only in me. And isn't this a great word? God is saying, I've done all these things to get your attention. To understand, I'm only doing a little bit of what I could be doing. Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. So in verse 6, after he says, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. He said, you guys aren't doing what is good. So you turn justice into bitterness, righteousness to rest in the earth. You just bury it. So verse 8, he made Pleiades and and Orion. So in other words, he made all the stars. He turns the shadow of death into morning. So in other words, there is no morning light. So where it should be morning in the morning light, it's now the shadow of death. He makes the day dark as night. He calls for the water of the sea, and he pours them out on the face of the earth. Now, this water of the sea being poured out, it's like the, a symbol of an oncoming army. He says, the Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. So he talks about the devastation that comes, but it's going to come in like a flood. It's going to come in like a storm. And verse 10, they hate the one who rebukes in the gate. They hate the judges. They hate the ones who correct them. And they abhor the ones who speak uprightly. So they abhor their teachers. They abhor their prophets. Therefore, because you tread down the poor, again, the people in prosperity, not ministering to the poor, verse 11, because you tread down the poor and you take grain taxes from him, and though you've built houses of hewn stone, you shall not dwell in them. So by oppressing the poor, you've made more homes. But you're not going to be able to live in those homes. And you've planted pleasant vineyards. So as you've oppressed the poor, you've made more vineyards. But you're not going to be able to dwell in your home and these planted vineyards, you shall not drink the wine from them. So although you've oppressed the poor to get more houses and to get more vineyards, You're not going to dwell in your house. You're not going to drink from your vineyard. Verse 12, God says, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. So in other words, anyone who oppresses the poor, if they give you a bribe, you let them oppress the poor. Therefore, the prudent keeps silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Those who should be judges, those who should speak wisdom, the ones that you guys just don't want any part of, these are the ones that you now have paid to keep silent. And he says, it's an evil time because the poor is being oppressed. And now he makes this statement, this absolute brilliant piece of light amidst this darkness in verse 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate that it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph, which of course is another name for Ephraim, which is another name for the northern tribes. So he says, just turn around and do the right thing. I love God. He just, just stop doing the wicked. I know this is an evil time. Just turn around. Seek God and do good. Hate evil, love good. That's all God wants from them. Therefore, because you're not going to do this, 
the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, verse 16, there shall be wailing in the streets, and they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning, the skillful lamenters to wailing, in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for it for I will pass through you, says the Lord. So God says, I'm going to come through your midst and I'm going to bring in this devastation. Everything, the farmers are going to mourn, the lamenters are going to wail, and in the vineyards there's going to be wailing as well. Because I'm going to simply pass through you. I'm not going to stay with you. I'm not going to protect you. Woe, verse 18, to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, you were all happy when I gave the woes to all this other city. Remember how Isaiah said, woe, woe, woe to all these other nations? And then lastly, he saw the Lord in verse 6, high and lifted up, and he had the last woe. Oh, woe to me, for I am undone. And he realized how inadequate he is. And so he says in verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You who are wanting my judgment upon other people. He says, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? He says, when the day of the Lord comes, my judgment comes upon the nations for what they did. My judgment is also going to come upon you for what you did. Why? There's no difference. There's no difference between you and the other nations. And I think this is important for us as Christians. Is there a difference between you and those in the world? Is there a difference in your attitude? Is there a difference when you go to your job? Is there a difference when you wake up? Is there a difference when you go to sleep? Is there a difference in how you spend your time to how they spend their time? And I think it's interesting that so often that there really isn't a difference. But here he says, you desire the day of the Lord, verse 18, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. And as though he went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and the serpent bit him. He says, listen, you are not going to escape judgment. There's no way that you are going to escape judgment. Remember what we read back there in Amos chapter 9 verse 10. Where all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. He says here, be careful. If you think that's going to happen... Verse 19 says, it will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. You escaped the lion, you got eaten by a bear. Let's just say you got into the house. You're like, oh my goodness, I got into the house. And you're now leaning against the wall to breathe. And then a serpent comes out and bites you on the hand and you die there. You will not escape the judgment. In verse 20 he says, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? It is not... Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days. He says, you guys with all this hypocritical worship and all of it that you know, you're given over to immorality and injustice to the poor and you're giving yourself over to sin. I hate, God says, I despise your feast days and I do not savor your sacred assembly Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your song, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. He says, you want to worship me? Change your life. You want to worship me? Change your course. You want to worship me? Change who you are. 
He says, you guys come and you're, you're wanting judgment to come to the nations. Judgment needs to come to you. And he says, and understand that when this judgment comes, it's going to come hard and it's going to come fast. And he says, you guys come and you, you put on this hypocritical worship to me. You're not worshiping me. He says, if you really want to worship me, then do this. Don't come in the house and sing and don't give. If you want to worship me, change your life. Just change your life. Change your heart. Change your life. Let justice, verse 24, run down like water. Let righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offering in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikoth. You carried these Assyrian idols, your king, and Chion, your idols, these Babylonian idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus. In other words, you're going to go beyond Damascus. You're going to go all the way up to Assyria. Thus says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So he says, I'm going to deal with you, and I'm going to deal with you in a very radical way. So in chapter 6, he says, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and who trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation of whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalna and see. Now, Kalna is, is, a, is a city that's about 60 miles to the south and the east of Babylon. And he says, so, so you go to that city there over by Babylon, see, and from there... Go to Hamath the Great. And Hamath is one of the upper Syrian cities. So they said now you have that swath that went through the Mediterranean. This is a swath that's now coming on the east side. And so here he says, go over to Chkelna and see. And from there go to Hamath the Great. And then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is your territory greater than or is their territory greater than your territory? So he, now he says you go from the area of Babylon over to um, here of the Syria, and then you come down to Gath of the Philistines. So you have this other swath that comes the other way. And when you have that swath, he says, are you better than these other kingdoms? Is their territory greater? Is your territory greater than yours? Is yours greater than theirs? Woe to you who put off the day of doom. And so he makes this statement to say, listen, you, you guys think that you're going to escape it and you're going to put it off? He says, no, woe are you who put off the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, you eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly into the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments. But you're not greed for the affliction of Joseph. So you're, you're living in luxury, laying on beds of ivory, on your couches, eating lambs and calves, just idly making up songs and making instruments. And then he says this, and you drink, verse 6, wine from bowls. Now understand, you should drink wine from what? Cups. He said, you guys are gluttons. with your, You've got bowls of wine that you're drinking from. You anoint yourselves with the best ointments. You take care of yourself, but you're not greed for the affliction. You're only taking care of the outward, the carnal part of you, but you're not dealing with the heart. You're not dealing with your spirit. 
Do not grieve for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, they shall, not go, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquet shall be removed. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts, saying, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So as he talks about here, again, the judgment calls it here Jacob. You know, Jacob, of course, is that heel catcher. He's the conniver. And so it's, it's before he was turned into or given the name of Israel. Then verse 9, then it shall come to pass. If ten men remain in one house, they're going to die. And when the relative of the dead with the one who burns the bodies picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, and he will say to the one inside the house, are there any more with you? And some will say, none. And he will say, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord gives a command that he will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. So at this point, ten people in the house are all going to die. And when someone comes to take them out and to bury them, and someone says, hey, are you alone? Someone says, hey, don't, don't say anything. I don't want God to know I'm here. Because he's judging everything here. So shh. I don't want him to know that I'm here because if you let him know that I'm here, he's going to judge me too. And this is interesting to see just how he goes on, which is, hold your tongue for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. Don't, don't call on God so that he puts his ear down here and he finds out that we're here. Because in verse 11, behold, the Lord gives a command that he will break the great houses into bits and the little houses into pieces. Everything is going to be destroyed. Do horses run on rocks? Well, if they do, they get injured. Does one plow there with an oxen? Do you plow among the rocks? No, if you do, you have injuries. Yet you've turned justice into gall. So keep in mind, he says, what, what, what should be good, you've made it into bad. What should be, you know, where, where your horse should run on a smooth, you've, you put it in where they're going to get hurt. Where a plow... And an oxen should plow where there's no rocks. You, you put them into just these areas that are all rocks. You don't plow rocks, you plow dirt. And so he says here, you've turned your justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, who rejoice over Lodabar. Now that term Lodabar is going to trick some people up. Lodabar means no word. Lo is another Hebrew word for no. And debar, of course, means word. So he says, listen, you guys turn justice into gall, the fruit of righteousness, the wormwood. You rejoice over no word. You rejoice over the fact that there's no word from the Lord, that there is a famine of the word of God here who say, I have not taken carname for ourselves. Carname means I've not taken anything or I have taken nothing for ourselves by our own strength. So he says, listen, all this was given, all this was given. Verse 14, he says, But behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arba. So from that area of the, the Syrian city all the way down to, to Arba, which is Egypt, you're going to be afflicted. Now when they are saying, listen, we didn't do this by our own strength. They're actually right. They didn't do that by their own strength. What they did is this. They afflicted the strength of the poor. That's how they got it. We didn't do this by our own strength. No, you did it by other people's strength. 
So when you're living in this luxury and you're saying, listen, we didn't do this ourselves. Well, you used others to do it for you. And then in chapter 7, it says, thus the Lord God showed me, behold, he formed locust swarm at the beginning of the late crop. And indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. Now at this point we're seeing here that God begins to now show Amos visions. The Lord God showed me. He's beginning to have this vision. And he formed locusts. And these locusts were beginning to eat the crop. Now what Amos does, there at the end of verse 2 and verse 3, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, he intercedes. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small, so the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be. So as God showed him a vision of, you know, here, their um, punishment, he, Amos asked that God would spare them, and God spared them. And then in verse 4, Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. And he said, O Lord God, cease, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Now, he showed him first these locusts coming. Then he showed him the fire coming and, and the conflict and the burning of the things. And so once again, he said, okay, God, please you know, forgive them. Don't do this. And so God relented again the second time. And now in verse 7, then he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line. And with a plumb line in his hand. Now if you know what a plumb line is, a plumb line is a string that hangs from the ceiling and it hangs straight down. Now the reason that you have a plumb line is to see if something is off kilter. See, whatever you have of your wall, that string is going to hang absolutely straight up and down. If your wall is crooked, you're going to know because it doesn't follow the line of the string. And God said here, Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line. In other words, what's absolutely perfect, what's absolutely in line with God. And with this plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I said, I see a plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I'm sending a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not pass them by any I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall lay waste. And I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. So we see here that what God is, is telling Amos to say, what do you see? I see this plumb line. In other words, I see what is absolutely straight. I see what is right. I see what is correct. And God says, all right, now compare what I show you, which is right, to what Israel is doing. What are the northern tribes doing? Well, what they're doing does not line up. It's not straight. And so at the very end, he says in the end of verse 9, I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Now, this isn't the first Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam the second. This is the Jeroboam that was there, the, the, the king at the same time as Uzziah. And so he's the king of northern Israel. And then, verse 10, Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam the king of Israel saying Amos, Amos has conspired against you 
in the midst of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. The Namaziah said to Amos, Go you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary and the royal residence. So here, Amaziah tells the king, you know, Amos wants evil for you. He's saying that you're going to die by the sword and Israel is going to be led away captive. So they now say to Amos in verse 12, go, go you see or flee to the land of Judah and there eat bread. Go back to your house. Go, go back down south and prophesy again. Don't prophesy up here at Bethel. Well, verse 14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, who was that false priest there in Bethel. He said, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophet, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not spout against the house of Isaac. So at this point he said, I wasn't even a prophet. I wasn't born a prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet. I didn't go to prophet school. I, I was a, a sheep breeder. I wasn't a, a shepherd of people. I was one who simply bred sheep and a tender of sycamore fruit. Now, a sycamore, keep in mind that as he was a sheep breeder, he wouldn't be a very wealthy person. He would be one of the poor people that were being oppressed. When he said that here, I was a tender of sycamore fruit, he said, I didn't own sycamore orchards. And keep in mind that a sycamore fruit is, is considered a poor man's fig. And so it's interesting. He said, I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't even a son of a prophet. I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. And God called me, who was nothing, to come and to prophesy to you. And I think, you know, isn't it just like God who calls nobody to say, I'm going to make you into somebody? Only God would take someone from a hick town like Tekoa, who's a sheep breeder and, a, and one who tends poor man's figs, and says, I'm going to make you a prophet, go and prophesy to those people who are the rich ones there in Israel who are oppressing the poor. That's what he's saying you need to do. And so he said, now, verse 16, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. Do not say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Israel. Thus, therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Now, what does that mean? Well, first he calls them cows. Now he says, your wife is going to be a harlot in the city. In other words, she's going to have no husband, she's going to have no son, and she's going to have no way to survive unless she sells herself. So he's saying, basically, all the men of the city are going to die. Your sons and the daughters are going to fall by the sword, and the land shall be divided by survey line, and you shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. Thus, the Lord God showed me, chapter 8, verse 1, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel, and I will not pass by them anymore. So he says, I see summer fruit. In other words, it's the very end of the harvest. He says, I'm not going to come here anymore. 
And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God, and many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. You who oppress these poor, verse 5, saying, when, the new, when will the new moon be passed? When that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat? making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. He says, well, when, when is this here? When is the new moon going to be passed? When is the Sabbath? We can't wait to oppress the poor. Why do we have to wait another day to repress the poor? Why can't we do it now? Why can't we get this day over with so I can get back to oppressing the poor? In verse 7, the Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their works. And so he says, shall the land not tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall be like the river heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass, verse 9, in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. So he talks about here the day of the Lord of the darkness. I will turn your feast into mourning, your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, baldness on every head, and make it like mourning for an only son. Now, when he says baldness on every head, he's not saying that I'm going to make men go bald. What he's saying is that they're going to shave their heads in lamentation and mourning. So when he says, he's not going to say I'm going to make all the men lose their hair. He says, and baldness on every head, they're all going to shave their head in mourning and grieving. So he's going to make it like the mourning of an only son and it end like a bitter day. Behold, verse 11, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a hearing of the word of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but not find it. He says, the word is here now. You can get it now, but if you reject it now, it's not going to come to you. You're not going to find it. Come now why it may be found. Come back and, and let your heart come back to the simplicity of changing your life and abiding by what God wants, this righteousness and justice. So in other words, righteousness in your own life, justice as you, you know, seek to bless others. In verse 13, in that day, the fair virgins and the strong young men shall faint from thirst, those who swear by the sin of Samaria. Um, the sin of Samaria um, could be their deeds, and also there's a proper name called Ashima. She's a Syrian goddess. And so it could be either swear by the sin, in other words, you swear by what you're doing, or you're swearing by this goddess, Ashima. I lean towards it be, should be a capital sin, is another name for Ashima, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So again, the judgment. And now chapter 9, I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the doorposts and the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all and slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall 
not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. In other words, remember back in uh, chapter 9, verse 10, we talked over and over again, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who shall say calamity shall not overtake or confront us. They're all thinking we're going to escape this. We're going to escape this judgment. So you can strike the doorpost of the threshold may shake, break them on the heads. I'm going to escape. Well, he says, he who flees from them shall not get away. He who escapes them shall not be delivered. Verse 2, though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up into heaven, from there I'll bring them down. And though they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I'm going to search out and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I'm going to command a serpent and it shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I'll command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. He said, you cannot escape the calamity. And in verse 5, the Lord God of hosts who touches the earth and it melts, and who all who dwell there mourn, and all of it shall swell like a river and subside like the river of Egypt, he who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata on the earth and who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord God is his name. So he talks about how the power of God creates and destroys. And now verse 7, he says, Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me? And this is where he changes because Ethiopia is small but loved. O children of Israel, says the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Ker. So he says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought the, the Philistines from the island of Crete. I brought the Syrians down from us, the Syrians down from Assyria. And verse 8, behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. There's going to be a remnant. There's going to be mercy. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake or confront us. On that day, verse 11, I will rise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I'll, repay, I'll rise up its ruins. I'll rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord God who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. <clears throat> no longer is it going to be death, but it's going to be the harvest. The treader of grapes... <coughs> And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine. So he talks about here this harvest and the beauty of everything coming back. And the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. <clears throat> they shall build waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens to eat and eat fruit from them. And I will plant them in the land and no longer shall they be puffed up. 
from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. God says, when I bring them back and I bless them abundantly, what's going to happen is this. At the very end of verse 15, he says, I'm going to plant them. I'm going to give them this great abundance. In other words, the abundance like you have now, but are abusing it. When you come back from captivity, I'm going to give you an abundance again. But this time, when you have the abundance, verse 15, I'm going to plant them in their land and they will no longer shall they be pulled up <clears throat> from the land that I have given them, says the Lord. And they shall no longer be pulled up. He says, I'm going to bless them and they're going to be humbled. They're going to come and they're going to be receiving my grace and receiving my mercies. <clears throat> and again, I'm going to bless you. But this time when I bless you, you won't abuse the blessings. And I think that's a great word for us as, as God comes and and, you know, you have this incredible blessing that has come here to this northern land. And they abuse it. He says, I'm going to strip it. I'm going to take it away. But once I bring you back, I'm going to bless you again. And that's God. <clears throat> so they get another chance to do it right the second time. And isn't that how God is? He brings us back say, I want to teach you again. I want to teach you again. I want to teach you again. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Seek the Lord while his word is here, lest he simply takes it away and there become this famine for the word in our own lives and in our, um, in our, our country. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for who you are and your great grace. How good you are, Lord, to give us this book and to teach us through this just how there was such an oppression that they had so much and yet they squandered it. So, Father, we simply ask that you would, through your spirit, teach us, teach us that we are stewards of all that we possess, and we want to honor you with it. That's what we want to do. We want to honor you with it, that, that if there are needs that you have, Father, just help us to reach out and, and minister and meet with those needs. So draw us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name, and all the saints of God said, amen. amen.